Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 53 of A. Thompson and Other Disappointments. My guest this week has a master's degree and a doctorate in child, school and clinical psychology. He is a clinical psychologist, an international speaker, a workshop trainer, an educator, uh, a school psychologist, an expert witness in forensic psychology... Uh, he was an instructor at Harvard Medical School and Boston University Medical School. He's now at Tufts University School of Medicine. Uh, he's also got a book out called 10 Lessons in Power Psychology. Psychology tips and techniques for people who would never set foot in a psychologist's office. I've been reading it today. I think it's great. Um, I studied psychoanalysis uh, about 10 years ago. And uh, uh, so this is these are themes that are of particular interest to me. So please welcome my guest tonight, Dr. Michael Abrisesi. Um, and you have your new book out, um, which I've completely lost the title of. How incredibly embarrassing. That's quite all right. Would you like me to jump in and tell you what it is? Please, yes. It's called, it's probably the worst title for a book ever, but it's called 10 Lessons in Power Psychology. Tips, psychology tips and techniques for people who would uh, never otherwise set a foot into a psychologist's office. I really should have called it something else, but that's, that's the name of it. I like it. It's short and snappy. Yes. I can't believe I didn't remember it. I mean, it's 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 so succinct. <laughs> like, so maybe I suppose a good place to start, really, um, Doctor Ray, would be uh, your background. Like, how how did you get into psychology? Because I suppose the 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 cliche, uh, the Netflix box set cliche, is that you know psychologists are uh, dark and tormented individuals. And, oh, uh, I see. That's why you're interested in that. Yes. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I really don't have that. However, I can tell you in the um, in some of the research that there is there, when I do continuing education, I make presentations to other you know, psychologists and therapists for their continuing education credits. Uh, some of the studies I cite are the fact that many people who go into the helping fields, whether it's a physician, psychiatrist, psychologist, social worker, counselor, or lawyer, uh, many of those folks came from a, a very difficult uh, childhood right. and do any kind of permutations and and twist and turns, they decided they wanted to help people, or they felt compelled to help people, and so they they do do go into that. So there is some research basis for believing that overall, in all the helpful fields, uh, that is true. But we don't have any research out there specifically uh, detailing, for example, clinical psychologists or just social workers or just lawyers or just it's kind of all mushed together. But yes, there is there are some concerns that I have that some people go into the field because of some of the problems they've had in their own life that sometimes could still be unresolved, which is why we have a, recognizing that in the, in the profession, we have set up supervisory um, guidelines. So we have a very strict set of ethics in psychology, much stricter than uh, medicine or law. And one of them is that we have a lot of supervision available to other clinicians. So quite often, the only time I actually have seen this uh, demonstrated, I think, was in an episode of The Sopranos where her psychi the psychiatrist had a psychiatrist supervisor. And uh, that is true. In psychology, social work, psych uh, psychology, you should have that supervisory capability and avail yourself of it. Sometimes people do, sometimes they don't. But we try to keep people from going off the rails like that because sometimes, um, even if people don't have difficulty when they go in the field, Sometimes working with trauma repeatedly, mm. uh, with a lot of loss and bereavement, it's very difficult to uh, manage their own reaction to that because some of the stories you hear are so terribly sad and tragic. So uh, therapists quite often need their own therapist to help them through it, and that's what's something we realized. Sure, sure. I suppose, um, well, my, my read of, of what you're saying there is that maybe when individuals come up uh, through, I don't know, a, a sort of traumatic background themselves, uh, they've had various troubling experiences or, or just, um, I don't know, a childhood or a, a form formative years where things haven't yet made sense to them and they're trying to resolve these things, that learning about something like psychology might help them to get over that hurdle. And then somewhere along the way, they decide that, actually it has helped me or it hasn't helped me yet but either way this is something i i want to help other people i want to teach people i want to become a psychologist and and help to um like assist people get 
get a little well, bit more help there. Probably not that in depth. But people decide they want to go into a, a certain kind of career, and truly, very few people uh, know the answer to the question why. Whatever the why question is. In, in America, I'm not sure what it's like in the UK, but in America, our educational system beats people over the head with understanding the question why, 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 why. What in reality, sometimes those questions are imponderable questions. They have no answer, and it drives people crazy. Cognitive behavioral psychology does not focus on the why. So uh, when people go into a helping field or any field, they quite often don't know why they're going into the field. Only later, after they've been in the field, do they realize. I once had a brilliant person I worked with when I was in, uh, when I was in school, going back decades, mm. and uh, he, he said he wanted to be a plastic surgeon. Well, that's good, we do plastic surgeons. And uh, then he kept on talking, and he said that I want to go into plastic surgery and want to help repair people's faces. Okay, we did that. And, he talked about all the horrific things that happened to people in car accidents and not a qualified plastic surgeons who just do facial reconstruction. And that's certainly true, too. But the reason he went into that was a deeply personal experience that he had. And he was not able to make the connection because of his deeply personal connection to facial reconstruction. Not that he had it himself, but the fact that he wanted to go into that. And there was a, a lot of other things behind his reasoning for going. He, did, he didn't know that. It's not intuitive. People quite often don't know why. They go into the fields that they do, and quite often they don't know why they do the things they do, even when they know they ought not to do them. So mm. that is that is really something that psychologists who are well-trained and experienced and well-educated can help people up. My job is to understand and help people move forward. They may decide they don't want to move forward, and that's fine. That's their right. But at least they'll have the ability to do so when I finish working with them if they want to. Do you think there's, in, in, in the States, uh, is is there a sort of um like a sort of uh, a poverty prohibitor in terms of people getting this sort of help in the same way that there is in the uk because i dabbled with psychotherapy in uh like a, about must have been about 10 or 15 years ago learning like the real nuts and bolts of it in an evening class um and i remember that one of the guys that was giving us a, a lecture one week said that basically it's i mean it's a crime that more people can't get this sort of therapy because it's so cost prohibitive is that the case in the states as well well, uh, the short answer is yes, but it's much more, complex, more complicated than that. Um, and the fact that in the states, I think it's unlike the UK. Uh, the states, we have 50 states and territories. They all have their different licensure laws about who can provide therapy. So if I want to do therapy in um, Missouri or New York or California, I really can't do that unless I get relicensed in those three additional states. Right. And that's prohibitive for the person to be able to do therapy. Where in, in other countries, and certainly in the... Um, in the EU, you're licensed in the entire country, and you can you can provide service to anyone in the country. You know, if you move and provide service, you can't do that in the state. So, we have a problem in the fact that there aren't enough people who are trained in all the areas to go into the local communities to provide services. So there's no availability. I see. That's even worse when it comes to psychiatric care in terms of getting medication. It's much worse when it comes to getting psychiatric medication. And it's worse also when you try to get even simple medical care or pediatric care. So yes, you, you don't have availability. Secondarily, we do have laws that have been passed in America in the past 20 years that mandate that every insurance plan must include psychotherapy services. All right. So if you have insurance, you can get it. And even if you have, oh, we, are, are, we, we don't have national healthcare, but we have something called Medicare for older people, Medicaid for people who are younger, who have uh, certain income requirements, and their Medicaid uh, does permit payment for psychotherapy cases. However, to make things more complicated, it is a state-by-state -state implementation. So if you have a governor of a certain state, a legislature of a certain state who does not want to expand Medicaid services to more people in the state, they don't have any access to it. So it's, it's more complicated, but it's exactly similar as it is to the UK. Uh, people don't have access to services, and they cannot pay for them, even if they wanted to, in some cases, because you don't have enough qualified clinicians. And if you don't have the money, your insurance should pay for it. But in some states, it won't let you pay for it because they won't, the state won't let you get on their insurance plan. Mm. And do you think that's, is that likely to change anytime soon? Is there a sort of lobby group that's trying to get it? better funded been, for the people that we need psychologists have been lobbying that for the past um, probably 40 years really and the the pandemic surprisingly enough has resulted in 
helping people to do that because now we have services called telehealth, which we probably have also in the UK and the EU. Uh, you can give services uh, through the internet or even on a telephone to people who need your services. So you're not required any longer to go into the doctor's office to get help. Whereas previously, up until uh, 2018, I think, or 2019, before the pandemic started, every insurance carrier required you make a face-to-face personal in-person contact to um, to the physician, the other psychologist that you wanted to see. With the pandemic, of course, you couldn't do that. So surprisingly, miraculously, automatically, every governor and every legislature opened up mandated to the insurance companies that they open up the rules so yes you can do telehealth services so uh, in my office i could talk to people all over my state no matter where they are if they want services i still can't do that in other states but we have lobbying groups that are changing that there's about 12 states if you're located in one of you know 12 states yes you can cross the border and do therapy in another state but you know we have 50 states here so that leaves 38 states that the governors aren't playing ball with that they don't want that to happen i see so there's there's some sort of light at the end of the tunnel there even if it's been uh, the case that certain states have been dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century against their will by the pandemic right yes correct i yep. see okay um and what what's your your take on uh, psychology online because you you're still practicing now right yes um, and that must be a different experience. Like, I think if I were a patient and I was speaking to a psychologist, uh, I would, I think I would benefit from the peace of being in an office with the individual and speaking to them face to face and feeling like they were listening to me. And uh, to a greater or lesser extent, having a Zoom conversation, I mean, not that this is great, you know, I, I'm enjoying talking to you, but, um, you know, having a, a call over the internet, I feel like you do lose something there. What, what's your, your take on it? Is it, is it well, my experience is, uh, is different than what, um, what I've been reading in the media and, and hearing on television, uh, and they are all full of doom and gloom about that process, but it's simply not true. Right. But it, it's, it's bifurcated. So there are two ways of looking at that. Yes, some people, as you say, they prefer, they want to be in person, in office, face to face, and that works best for them. And that is entirely true for a lot of people. However, for a very large subset of people, they don't want to do that. They have anxiety disorders, they have social anxiety disorders, they have more serious conditions, and they love, absolutely love the fact that they can talk to someone and get advice. And that's exactly what CBT is. CBT is different from talking therapy. Sure. I'm sorry, cognitive behavioral therapy. CBT is different from talking therapy and this is exactly what they need this helps them the fact that they have the availability but also the buffer they don't have to be face to face within you know six or eight feet of another person in the office it makes them feel very comfortable seeking psychological help whereas before they would never have done that similarly people who have learning disabilities kids who have learning disabilities it is better for them better for the vast majority of, of learning disabled kids to learn online they don't go to school, they're not bullied, they're not humiliated, the teacher cannot play favorites with them, and it's much, much better. The kids can actually learn, and all that artifice of um, personality issues and sociological issues and diversity issues, they are removed. Hmm. So it helps a lot of people who have learning disabilities and other kinds of psychological conditions to have remote learning and also to have remote therapy. But as you say, no, not for everybody, but for big subsets, it's very helpful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose from from a sort of uh, like weighing up what's what's best for the greater good. Like you could make the case that uh, if a greater number of people are able to get psychological care as a result of things like Zoom or Skype or, or whatever, mm-hmm. then isn't that doesn't that benefit outweigh the odd person like me who says, oh, you know, I'd rather sit in an office, you know? Oh, it doesn't way. It's just uh, simply uh, it's, it's a more transparent and availability issue. You know, so transparency and availability in healthcare are very important. If you don't have access to healthcare, it doesn't matter how willing you are to be in therapy, you don't have access. But now in remote sections, let's say of Arizona, uh, mm. New Mexico, even remote sections of uh, my state, Massachusetts, uh, you have availability. You know, you can find somebody on uh, on the computer. And so that does help. So it, it it should not take the place of people who want to be in person. 
but it gives an opportunity for people who don't have any access in person or otherwise. Mm-hmm. So it expands the opportunity for people to get more help. So there are two different markets, people who would never have the opportunity to have help. And also, for example, someone like yourself, um, if you had a, a snow problem, be it a car breakdown, if you've got, oh, if you've got COVID, if you're in quarantine for COVID, you can fire up the old computer and still talk to your doctor or your therapist for one or two sessions while you're in quarantine. You couldn't do that before. You have to drag yourself out of a sick bed, you know, to go to your therapy appointment. That's counter therapeutic. You know, so it's beneficial in many cases. It's not a panacea, but it really is a very helpful addition. It's a very helpful addition, not something to take the place of in in person face to face visits. Sure, sure. Um, I I want to come back to this topic of uh, utilizing technology uh, within healthcare. Uh, in a bit, but I thought first off, let's let's go into uh, some areas of your book, uh, if we can. Um, power psychology is not an area that I'm particularly familiar with. Um, I'm sort of loosely aware that there has certainly over the last sort of five or ten years, there's been this sort of fashion of um, taking psychological concepts, um, giving them a nice slick wrapper for a book, and then selling them out of airport stores, right? Um, yeah. Your book feels a bit different to that. I've read a little bit of um, the stuff that your assistant sent over. Um, it feels like what you're doing is you're taking uh, like strong psychological kind of pillar concepts and then rewriting them in a way that is kind of consumable and, and actually quite fun and funny um, in, in, uh, in parts. Um, okay. Perhaps you could, could you take us through your understanding or like your... Uh, uh, way of communicating what power psychology is. Sure. Uh, as I said before, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, CBT, is different from classical talking, you know, talking therapy that you see on TV or in the movies. And the power psychology aspect really is what cognitive behavioral therapy is. Cognitive behavioral therapy and positive psychology, they are, I would say they are powerful tools, but that sounds a little too jargony. What, what they really do is um, they take psychological awareness and teaching to people and use a multimodal basis to get through to people. It's not, it's more experiential, it's not really talking therapy. So the power psychology techniques that I talk about are all cognitive behavioral therapeutic techniques. The power in power psychology is CBT. For years, it was all psychoanalytically oriented psychodynamic psychotherapy. Now that's a mouthful, but that's what you see with talking therapy or counseling. You go, you talk, you talk, you talk, you know, and maybe something miraculous happens, what the old psychoanalyst used to call the aha experience, the light bulb goes off and like, oh, now I understand. Well, that happens to people all the time. It does not translate into meaningful change in their lives, but that was talking therapy. Cognitive behavioral psychology helps guide that and helps push that along by certain kinds of power techniques. So you help people power through whatever is going on by using powerful interpersonal change techniques. So power psychology is really CBT. And I'll also add, well, this is a little over 20 years. When CBT was first discovered and started to be promulgated as a therapy, insurance companies wouldn't pay for it Mm. because they considered a newfangled experiential experimental technique that we don't want to have our insured, you know, uh, people go through until it's been proven. Well, it was proven pretty clearly. Um, but it still took years before the insurance companies would cover it. It was a radical technique. Well, it was radical according to them because they just don't want to change. They mm. just don't want to pay for other things. They'd rather pay for pills and medication instead of a therapy at all. But that's what CBT is. It's a power psychology technique. And the book talks about all the CBT techniques. Uh, I think I have 10 of them in the book. And like perhaps a, a sort of working example might be useful. So let's say I'm having a, uh, a sort of an anxiety uh, or a period of anxiety where I'm worried about, uh, I don't know, my job and if I'm a good father. And um, I, I suppose traditionally in a sort of psychotherapy or psychoanalyst kind of setting, we would go back to my childhood and look at what, like why I'm so anxious, why I'm unable to handle this sort of this situation and strengthen me. And um, uh, and in a sort of CBT or power psychology uh, uh, paradigm, if you like, 
this would be more about sort of targeting those feelings, right? I, I would yes. be thinking, right, what am I feeling right now? How do I focus on the actual thing that I'm doing right now rather than the anxiety and and coming up with sort of mental exercises to ensure that I'm not dwelling on that stuff and I'm not focusing on the negative aspects of my life, right? Yes, that's a very good summation. Yes, exactly. Okay, cool. Um, so... So yeah, perhaps we could could we touch on like a couple of the uh, the areas that you've covered in your book. Um, so yeah. I recall that you had uh, there's a there's a lot of acronyms, <laughs> but you start with um, pace. I think it was. Can we talk about yeah. pace? Right. So it's important to uh, to pace yourself. And uh, when you know in, in describing the book, I, I write in the book that the chapters are very short. You can probably read a chapter in maybe a, a minute or two, and you can put it into practice immediately. And that's the key. If you're reading, and also the book is very, the book overall is very short, about 144 pages, I think. Because no one's going to read a long book, a long self-help book. You want something that you can read and you can put into practice immediately. And I wrote this, I think uh, the first edition came out in 2010, the last one in 2017. So it's a lot of repetition. So you read something in the first chapter, you're reading some of the very same words when you get to the end of the chapter. And many people say, well, why, why do you do that? Because repetition, repetition, repetition is extremely important. Hmm. People learn by doing repeatedly over and over again, but they do it by doing things repeatedly over and over again correctly. Hmm. So you can learn to swing a golf club incorrectly as much as you want. If you don't learn to swing it correctly, no amount of practice is going to do you well if you're swinging, if you're swinging it incorrectly. So the, the idea of pacing yourself and being aware of what's going on in the here and now is very important because that is the, the bedrock. That is the bedrock which we have to build on. If you do not cultivate awareness of what's going on in your own life, what's going on around you, very hard to build any self-help skills upon that on your own. The book is designed as a self-help book. In therapy with CBT, we can teach people who are profoundly autistic to change their behavior and modify their behavior, and they have a lot of coaching. You really couldn't, someone who is profoundly autistic probably could not get a lot of help out of the book, but the people who are coaching them could get a lot of help out of the book. Hmm, I see. Why do you think, why do you think this sort of, these instincts uh, to sort of, uh, you know, to not dwell on the past, to not overly focus on feelings of anxiety or depression and, and, and to instead sort of develop these exercises and these techniques to, uh, to manage our psychology. Why do you think these things are not kind of built in or better known? Well, they're not better known because for over genera generations, uh, going back to Freud, um, the predominant, he, he taught what he discovered and what he knew, and people who built on that built on what they discovered based on their framework. And it wasn't until the 1940s, really, uh, in World War II, that psychology came into its own by coming up with devising tests, psychological tests, to determine who would be a good soldier and who wouldn't be a good soldier. And the psychological testing, which is still with us today, was really the foundation of clinical psychology. Psychology, basic psychology, started in the 1800s in experimental laboratories, sort of trying to answer the question you spoke about earlier, like why? It's more like wondering, hmm, I wonder, you know, what a person can do about this. I wonder what the limit of a memory is. I wonder, well, what's be done about how people learn things? And that was the experimental laboratory. We took the experimental laboratory results and we turned them into psychological testing, kind of under the gun, literally, to try and do testing for World War II. From that, when people came back in Russia and in, um, and in the UK and in America, trying to help the veterans... We tried to help them with what was then called shell shock or some other kind of term, which is now called post-traumatic stress disorder. Sure. And also people who had um, brain injuries. So people who had traumatic brain injuries, they had a head injury, um, their brain was different. They couldn't learn things. Well, surprisingly enough, to the doctors of those days, they were surprised. Like, why can't a person walk because they had a head injury? Why can't a person speak because they had a head injury? It's from there, more research was done to realize that our brain really controls all these behaviors. And from that into the 1950s, a guy named uh, B.F. Skinner, Fred Skinner, was the guy who decided that he can put this together into a clinical framework of basically association. X happens, 
and then Y follows. He took that from the laboratory and put it in, uh, in real people. And he showed that in people, you can train behavior by doing a, a simple association of, of a stimulation and then a response to the stimulus. At one point in the 1950s, he trained pigeons how to fire missiles, and he tried to convince the Air Force they didn't need so many people firing missiles, they could just use his pigeons. As you can imagine, that didn't get over very well. <laughs> Theoretically, right. it was sound, but of course, no one in their right mind is going to have pigeons firing missiles, but uh, th no. that was apparently missed by Fred. He didn't quite get that. And that's how it, it started to break into the psychoanalytically-oriented psychodynamic psychotherapy. And there was a lot of resistance, as you can imagine. People thought this was absurd, this is crazy, this is bizarre. That's, how could this possibly help? If you're anxious about your job, it must be related to your childhood and how you were raised. Well, that made perfect sense to people who were trained like that. Yeah. The people who were trained like that didn't make any sense at all when you had the laboratory results. And so it you know, goes into the 1970s when you had Albert Ellis uh, doing cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and then you had uh, Aaron Beck, a psychiatrist of all people, doing research with cognitive behavioral therapy. Independently, these two guys came up with the fact that if you merge behavior change, a stimulus and a response, with thinking, intervening thinking variables to think about the behavior, you get a huge response in a positive area if you link all those things together. So then it became a quest, how do we get people to change their thinking? How do we get people to change their behavior? And in later iterations of that, it also became the question, how do we get people to change their physical sensations, their internal physical sensations, to aid in changing their cognitions and also their behavior? And what I teach is that you really have three things that you have to focus on for behavior change. You have to change someone's cognitions, you have to change their emotions, and you have to change their physical sensations. Mm. If you know one of those things, you can change the other two. But you have to figure out what they are. That starts with awareness. So the self-help book sort of talks about the end point of that. Just do these things, and it's going to help you. In therapy with the CBT therapist, they would be going through all those steps that you take to figure out these things, mm. whereas the book is kind of like done for you. It's, it's, it's such a fascinating topic for me. Like, I wish I had the capacity to, to, to truly delve into it and study it. Like, if, if I was going to go back to university, I'd love to study psychology um, or, or pick up where I left off with, uh, with psychoanalysis. Um, I, like one of the areas that I'm particularly drawn to is what what areas of psychology are too deep to touch in the sense that like I have a, a phobia of butterflies right I've had it since I was four uh, I according to my mum I walked up to a bush when I was on holiday in South Africa it was immediately after my parents split up uh, and uh, I walked up to this bush and I hit it with my bucket and spade uh, and all of these butterflies came out and flew into my face and it startled me and I was scared stiff um, and ever since then terrified of butterflies well I mean as you know I'm 41 now I can just I can sort of handle them but I'll, I will walk away from them and if one of them flies in the house I'm leaving the room sort of thing um, good strategy thanks yeah it's worked for me um, so so I would imagine that with with CBT or with therapy, like somebody somewhere would sit me down and say, OK, well, like, what is it that you're feeling when you when you see a butterfly and you've got no. to you, no, you've got to like un, no. don't focus on the butterfly, focus on where you are and all that. No. no. What would you no. <laughs> what would you say? Not not a bad not a bad thought. It's kind of intuitive to think about that, you know, but that that would presuppose um, a belief that feelings underlie all our behavior. And that's simply not true. Right. The, the psychoanalysts, the novelists, all the people who write great literature uh, in psychiatry would say that um, emotions are the most important thing in a person's life and understanding why they have their behavior. That simply is not true. Uh, unless you unless you do some work in the field and you realize it's not true, it's very intuitive to believe that, of course, it's true. It's just like it's, it's self-revelatory, isn't it, that emotions are, you know, are the most important thing. It's simply not true. They are equally important with cognitions and physical sensations but they're not the most important thing but it's like so, it, if you go back uh, to the fear of of so i see a butterfly come into the room and i it's a visceral fear like it's i i'm getting adrenaline in my stomach let me just stop you there sure and the reason i'm jumping in to stop you i'm giving an idea how uh, how i do the therapy someone says something i want to jump in and grab it right at that moment to interrupt that for a couple of different reasons so i'm not just trying to be a jerk about this sure they, Feel free, you can interrupt me too, but 
the work of CBT is sort of catching things when people say things and they don't realize they're saying it very casually, but they are programming themselves. So when you say something like it's a visceral response, you for programming yourself that you have a visceral response. I don't conceptualize what happened to being a fear response at all. I don't, that's not my conceptualization about what happened. However, after all these years, you said it happened when you were so young, all these decades later, clearly you've convinced yourself that it's a fear response. And you have a, a physiological sensation, what you call the visceral response, that is an association to seeing a butterfly. When I think, in fact, the butterfly is not the issue. The butterfly happened to be there, or a thousand butterflies happened to be there at the time. But it's not the butterfly. The butterfly is simply a representation of what happened. That is the way I would conceptualize it. You know, now if you were in therapy with me, we talk about it more. Maybe I would have to adjust my hypothesis to something else. But clearly, you have a physiological response, no question about that. And your physiological response, if that is the first reaction you have when you see a butterfly, that physiological response then triggers an associative emotional response, which then triggers an associative cognitive response. So first you have a trigger, like a pain to central nervous system, and then it lights up cognitions and emotions, right? So it could happen the other way around. You could have had a pain to central nervous system that activated an emotion, say sadness or something like that, or happiness, you know, right. giggling. And that would then light up cognitions, then light up physical sensation. The laws of association in, in the behavioral psychology, they're immutable. They go cross culture, they go cross generation, they affect everyone the same way. People who have well, maybe some motivation in any one of the number of areas would prevent people from understanding that because if more people understood that, more people could change their lives for the better. And really, you know, a lot of times sociology, psychology, psychiatry have been agents of social control, not really to help so many people. Like when you have organizational psychologists go in for a business, the people who bring them in, they don't really want the business to change very much. They want their employees to behave better. That's all they're interested in. They don't want their employees to have better lives and be independent mm -hmm. and then realize, oh my God, what am I working for this person for? And go and start <laughs> their own company. They don't want that to happen, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons that they want to hold people back and not have a lot of psychological information known. That's why they have cut back a lot on paying for psychological testing and insurance companies. And that's why they want to go more for medication. If you can medicate someone, you keep them a good little soldier. They never ask any questions, right? And they manage to live with their misery. A cognitive behavioral psychologist wants people to rise above that. Thank God, we can't have that happen, can we? No, it's an interesting scenario that you've you've touched on there, like where you've got a we, like we don't have it so much here. I don't think. Oh, like I've worked for a collection of of larger companies, and uh, I'm not familiar at all with any of them who have a sort of you know a, uh, a periodical meeting with a, a occupational therapist or like I, th I think there are occupational therapists or psychologists and yep. stuff in the building but there's never been any sort of like have you checked in with a therapist have you checked in with a psychologist yep. yet um but it would be an interesting situation where you know you do meet up with them say once a month and you talk to them and they do start giving you some power psychology and saying like have you thought about how you want to better yourself like have you ever asked yourself if you want more from your life <laughs> talk them well, out of we, like yes, working so let, me, let me interrupt you there for a second of course i don't imagine that would ever happen in the building with the organization mm. because that will be very subversive to the organization so when you have an independent physician independent psychologist independent social worker that person is on your team they are working with you they're not working for the insurance company they're working for you mm. But if you go to the company psychologist, who do you think they're working for? Yeah. They're working for the company. If you go to a school psychologist, who do you think they're working for? They're working for the school. And yeah, they're trying to help you, but they're working for the school. Is there, okay? is there ever any situations where somebody goes to a, uh, a corporate psychologist uh, and they are encouraged to just be themselves and be perfectly open uh, and all of these notes are taken they go into the human resources files and then at the tail end of some sort of disciplinary procedure that information is used against them yes there have been cases where that happens and of course there are supposed to be firewalls against such things right but in reality if the boss decides to go snooping through somebody's file cabinet and has a key because he's the boss well who's to know i, I once worked in the school system years ago and 
uh, a new principal came in, a new principal demanded that all the school psychologists, of which I was one, uh, give him, uh, him copies of their keys to the file cabinets. And he was shocked, absolutely shocked. We all said, no, dude, that, no, we're not doing that. You can't have access to that. Yeah. yeah. And that was a big problem. So but we had another principal before that. Dude, no, didn't have any interest in doing that whatsoever. He was able to maintain that firewall. So it really is up to the individual. Mm. You know, and uh, there were some people, there were some bosses that would not dream of doing such a thing. All the bosses, exactly, they would do that, try and use against someone. Mm. Well, I want to say something. The younger generation, when people talk about the Me Too movement, when people talk about you know, cancel culture, these are different kind of terms for saying, we want to have some changes. We want to have a bit more autonomy in this kind of stuff, especially in a large corporation. You have some people who are younger, and they think it's ridiculous that they have to actually go to the office and work 9 to 5 when they can do more work at home between midnight and 5 o'clock in the morning. Right? And that has also been a change that people have seen because of the pandemic. And I think that's a positive change for a lot of people. But who's in charge? Well, you know, people who are generations older than that, and, and they still stuck in thinking, no, you got to come to the office. We need the bricks and mortar. We have this wonderful office, this beautiful campus. you got to work from 9 to 5 because I want to make sure you're working from 9 to 5. Yeah. That's not the way it really has to be. And where psychology is getting a big help now. We're getting big help by a younger generation who's being able to look at some of these things and saying, dude, we don't have to do it this way. We can be more efficient doing something in a different way. And now people have to listen. Yeah, there's there's a real sort of clash of cultures uh, in that respect over here. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the um, uh, with the British businessman Alan Sugar, Sir Alan Sugar. Um, no, don't know him. He's, uh, he's like this sort of British... He, he hosted the British version of The Apprentice. Uh, uh-huh. So he's sort of supposedly this big, successful millionaire businessman. Uh, he started Amstrad, was a big company, in, uh, computer company in the 80s. Um, <clears throat> and he was, he's gone on record a few times in various newspapers saying uh, that he expects his entire workforce to come back to the office. And the guys um, of, of an older generation, I think he's a, technically a baby boomer, um, which is fine. Uh, but there is this attitude from him and from not not from everyone like in his walk of life but uh from from that type of person that type of older businessman who as you've alluded to just now expects bums to be on seats you know i want to see that you're in your partition thing and i want in your little cubicle and you've got to be here from 8 30 till 6 p.m and you're quite right the younger generation are like this 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 is completely unproductive like i'm why am i wasting an hour of my life to like commute in i'm doing nothing in that time except staring at my phone you know then i've i'm stuck in the office all day i could be doing this stuff from home like and also the younger generation have this sort of understanding of like i read an article a couple of years ago about um multi-hyphenates which is um a term that's uh wrapped around the younger generation in the sense that they don't consider themselves necessarily like a psychologist or a journalist or you know like one thing they absolutely consider themselves to be right i'm mandy or i'm john and on tuesdays i'm going to work on my blog and on wednesdays i'm going to try and build up my youtube channel and then thursdays and fridays i'm going to train to be a nurse and like so they see themselves as these sort of multifaceted potentially like multi-professional entities uh and that i think is a complete shift from from the generations that have come before i agree you know the older older generation had a term for that the older generation and i'm talking not the baby boomers but um so-called greatest generation you know baby boomers parents uh, a jack of all trades and a master of none Mm. a little bit of this a little bit of that but you never really did anything well i think I think you're quite right when you say the younger generation is indicating that you can do quite a lot of things and you can do quite a lot of things well. Mm. And uh, the jack of all trades, master of none. Uh, hundreds of years ago, you know, our forebears had a term for that too. It was called the Renaissance man. You know, there were a lot of things you could learn, a lot of things you could do. You know, people during the, the Renaissance, quite often they were not known for doing one thing. They were known for doing several things really quite well. Mm. Uh, so it's entirely possible um, to do... Uh, multitasking you know there are some people who everyone claims they can do multitasking not everyone can do it well but you can certainly do things very well on different days you know monday you do this tuesday on this thursday on that no question about that i think it's a very great direction to go into i think it's really going to help develop any kind of society for the better but there's going to be a lot of resistance from the older generation who is resistant to change yeah yeah i think you're right i think 
there's there's going to continue to be at least for the foreseeable future a real sort of pushback on and unless you're a very confident negotiator like if you go into a job interview and you say yeah i'll be your administrative assistant for for like 25 grand a year and then the person says oh well it only pays 20 and then you go okay i'll i'll work for you monday to wednesday for 15 (laughs) and then thursday and friday i get to do my own thing like if you negotiate like that you can still pursue your dream or your goal or whatever but you're also kind of playing the game like having a nine to five job also like just to keep the bills ticking over but i don't know how many people would be certainly in that sort of younger age bracket when you're going for those sorts of jobs i i know if i was going for an admin assistant role when i was like 23 i there's no way i would have been confident enough like they would have said oh it only pays 20k i would have been like okay i'll do it for 18 yeah um well as people get older and they get more experience they they the generation will be able to adopt that you know so more people do there's never going to be the dominant uh, modality but there's going to be increasing numbers of people there will always be people who feel most comfortable by going into an office sitting in the cubicle and working uh, 8 30 to 6. they just want to do that and mm. that's fine right? just like there'll be people who want to be in the doctor's office face to face with the doctor in the office that's fine but it helps so much more if there's a flexibility to do things out of the office and you know out of the little square box that people like to put other people in we have some research indicating that giving more free time to kids either at home and also in school they are much more productive and we have the same research for adults people who work you if you don't tether them to the desk they are much more productive Mm. if you stop trying to beat on them to be more productive many of them not all of them many of them can be more productive by having an atypical work day i think it's very important to realize that the people who work best with an atypical work day should be allowed to have that the people who work best without an atypical work day should be allowed to take advantage of that too but we always have this idea that it's one size fits all mm. everybody has to do the same thing it's got to be fair yeah 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 it's sort of it's a very archaic way of thinking isn't it it's like come in yeah. here sit down in your cubicle uh then you get a 15 minute fag break and um uh, then you go off for lunch for 45 minutes and then maybe another break in the afternoon and uh and any time that is not a break you will be solidly working but the reality of work is that or certainly in my experience is that people do not just sit and slave away in those working hours even if there is an expectation in their contract that they absolutely will will be working for eight hours a day or whatever people work in bursts people work in like they will they'll come in they'll get a coffee they'll catch up with their colleagues then they'll sit down they'll do about 45 minutes work then they'll get up have another coffee bit of a chat then they might be a bit lazy and like write an email back to their mum or their sister or something um and then in the afternoon they'll really like smash it get everything done and like that's how i think most people work is in sort of like up and down graph kind of bursts of of productivity but well i would i would say um certainly many people not most but yes that's what they do they operate by fits and starts because again we have research indicating the optimum time that people can spend on tasks is 45 or 50 minutes uh, big mistake when high schools in America decided to go to 90-minute classes. Well, after 45 minutes, pretty much all those kids are gone. I'm just sitting there, you know, putting their time in. So, yes, yeah, so for many people, they learn better and they work better the way you described. Mm. Um, I, I want to go back to, um, to, to psychology and psychologists, uh, broadly speaking. Um, I thought it might be interesting to get your thoughts on, like, what, what are the big misconceptions that people have about psychologists? Like are they? Because the, the I mentioned, oh. like I mentioned at the beginning, the, the the cliche from like Netflix box sets is that you're all quite sort of dark and tormented, and um, but like are psychologists funny? Are they? <laughs> do they have a dark sense of humour? Do they? What 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 are psychologists like? Well, there's no. I, I don't know. What are podcast hosts like? That's the same question. You know, what are physicians like? They're all sorts of different. The work that I do. I try to inject a lot of uh, humor and a lot of practicality and try and make it a fun place for people to be. I do a lot of work with kids and families, and I try to be as engaging as possible. And I'm not the doom and gloom kind of person that many people meet when they're in an emergency room. When I work in emergency rooms, 
what I try to do is I try to bring some uplift and some hope to what's going on. And a lot of physicians that I've worked with, they don't do that at all. And some psychologists that I've worked with, they don't do that at all. It really depends on, on the kind of their training. Mm. But, you know, psychologists are just like uh, everyone else. They typically are much better trained. They're better trained than psychiatrists, better trained than um, than social workers and mental health counselors. You know, for example, I've got two master's degrees and a PhD, and they used to teach at Harvard. Well, you need to get a PhD in uh, clinical psychology before you can get licensed in just about every state. They do have a lower degree in some of the states. You can get a license at a master's level psychologist, but that's your license, a master's level psychologist, you know, not a clinical psychologist. And the people who are usually very well trained, they have to spend a lot of time in school and they have to spend a lot of time in the field. They have to spend a lot of time uh, doing research. Classical training was a research science practitioner kind of model. Nowadays, the model is not so much on research, it's more uh, in the field uh, the field of doing research, maybe getting a PsyD instead of a PhD. Mm. But there's a wide variety of training and um, people are really limited by their training and their ability to think out of the box. Hopefully, good psychological training trains psychologists to think out of the box and always pay attention to the current research. But you have to understand there are a lot of caveats that come with the current research. Many people graduating, certainly with an MD or with a lesser degree than a PhD, they don't understand any of the research. Uh, even some people who are doing the research don't understand the research that they're doing. They need someone to explain it to them. But it's important to understand the research and see what can be used as what they call evidence-based practitioner skills and stuff that is just basic research that really has no practical sense whatsoever. Mm. And hopefully a, the training that a a skilled clinical psychologist goes through enables them to understand that. So I'm afraid I can't endorse your idea of psychologists being dark or threatening. I kind of like that, though. It makes it seem kind of like mysterious and glamorous, you know, but it's really not the work that I do, and I don't think that my patients would describe me as that <laughs> way. Yeah. I don't know. I, I suppose it's like anything. It's like you, you, you touched on a minute ago. Like you get different types of people in every uh, every industry, every discipline. I I do think like so. I work in software engineering uh, when I'm not podcasting, and uh, uh, there is a certain type of like it's usually a man. Let's be honest; it's usually a guy that's working in IT. Uh, typically, it's a guy over the age of thirty. We're all kind of geeky, slightly pudgy. Um, but then, I don't know, you get the tech bros as well, don't you? So it's, I don't know, maybe maybe tech is sort of broadening out now to have various subcultures to it. Yeah, so what is the question that you're trying to get to? I think I think what you're trying to do, and I don't mean to be um, critical when I'm saying this, but it's very common because that's what the field of psychology was for generations. It's very reductionistic. Mm. You know, try and put all size... For, you know, one size for all people, all sizes fit into this little box. So who is your typical software engineer? Well, the first you know, clarification is, well, what is the generation that they graduated in? Where did they come up? Did they, did they come up working for Bill Gates in Microsoft? Very different kind of field than the people who are working in, in Amazon uh, software services, you know, or cloud services these sure. days. Right? And also different kind of managerial skills, right? Uh, the people who work for Apple, uh, were they basically different than the folks who worked for uh, for NASA? You know, it really depends on the generation and the kind of calling that they felt. So what kind of podcast host are you? Are, are all the podcast hosts very similar? You know, you know as well as I do, they're different kinds of setup, different kind of interests. Sometimes um, they're only in it because they want to hear their own voice. Other people want to be in it because they want to provide a service to other people. Other people really do it because they really love what they're doing and give a platform to others. So... I think it's important to get away from one size fits all. There are all sorts of different kinds of folks who become software engineers, all sorts of different folks who become psychologists, physicians, psychiatrists, social workers, teachers, businessmen, you know, and outside of generalities, which I will say do exist. And mostly you can put people in a bunch of, you know, discrete categories, but not everyone. There are huge subsets as much as 20, 25% of would be in different subsets. Mm. So, you talk about every uh, software engineer being X, Y, or Z. Maybe that's true, 
Well, that's maybe only 40% of all engineers because 20% of something else and 20% of something else and 15% of something else yeah, and 5% yeah. of something else. You know, the, the irony here is that I was sort of trying to move away from generalities and be like, you know, most people think that psychologists are very, you know, sort of dark and tormented. Like, can we get more... What, what are you really like? And actually, I've ended up going in like straight back <laughs> into cliche and gener generalities again. Um, I, I mentioned uh, uh, earlier in the podcast that um, I wanted to circle back and come to... Uh, to the, the sort of future of psychology and, and where it's headed and that we were touching on uh, like zoom calls and, and that sort of thing uh, before but um, clearly the pandemic has, has moved things forward quite substantially in terms of the technology that, that everyone is using across the planet um, I'm sort of mindful that we're, we're just on the cusp of really seeing an explosion in VR at the moment um, I think it was a month ago or a couple of months ago now that Zuckerberg was talking he did that video about the metaverse which to me feels very much like a sort of matrix style deal mm -hmm. uh i think if it's not the metaverse it will be something similar to it that the, the the actual like life on earth will become like you can call me pessimistic if you like but i think life on earth will like whether it's through climate change or a pandemic and new variants and so on or crushing poverty people will opt to live a sort of fantasy world in a metaverse or a metaverse like type thing um but if we go into something like the metaverse um do you think there's certain benefits like is there is there new ways that we could apply psychology and psychological healthcare to people that 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 exploits vr in a way that they they wouldn't be able that you wouldn't be able to do in like in a regular therapeutic setting is there anything about vr you're excited about or no all this uh, all the stuff about uh using online therapy and VR stuff, that's all just a bunch of BS, you know, yeah. um, uh, <laughs> because you, you cannot have an application. You can't download an app mm. that's going to help you have a better life. Can it remind you to do your meditation exercises? Sure. Can it give you a variety of different meditation exercises to choose from? Sure. Can it force you to do them? No, can't do that. Same thing with VR. VR can't force you to do anything. It's really it would be a giant distraction. Could it be helpful? It could be helpful in the way that computers are helpful to do to, for some people to do microsurgery, but you still need someone in charge of, of doing the surgery. So I would be able to use VR the same way I help people use imagery. Imagery in their heads is much more powerful than VR because it re requires some cognitive effort, which requires change to happen in the person. VR is much more passive. Not that it couldn't be entertaining, just like uh, smoking weed or taking drugs or even taking prescription drugs. Mm. They bliss you out. They anesthetize you. Okay, but they don't teach you any, any new skills. VR does not teach you any new skills. You know, if you want to play a video game, the video games, depending on the game, they can teach you some reaction time skills. Uh, but again, if you do them properly. But if you're going to have a psychologist help with VR, a psychologist help with online gaming, uh, different kinds of software to help people be better or get better my guess is probably going to be you'll need a psychologist to help people from losing their mind because that's the most important thing and people can lose their mind very easily as soon as you get lost in a fantasy and there are some people i'm not sure what it's like in the uk we have a lot of deniers uh, in uh, in america and certainly from what i read about deniers in uh, the european union of many things climate change and the covid and the science and all this kind of stuff like that well, those people, I would suggest you could be, many of them, many of them, could be considered delusional, right? And those people, if they're delusional, you're out of touch with reality. Mm -hmm. The last thing we need is something to make it easier for people to lose touch with reality. And VR could be used in that way. Mm -hmm. Just like any other kind of distraction could be used in that way. You've got to decide where you're going to live. If you want to live in reality, which is where most of the other people are, then you have to make a commitment to reality. If you want to escape from reality... I think we know what that leads to because of history. Mm. There that's just my opinion. My my opinion is that there there's a small part of me, actually, there's a large part of me that that wants to kind of take the delusional type. Like over here, it's like Brexit, like Brexiters. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah who truly believe that the European Union is this sort of like arch evil enemy than we, when we're fantastic now that we've, you know, it's like a World War Two all over again. We've beaten yeah. the Germans and they're fantasy, all of it. Um, <clears throat> and there's a part of me that would love to just put a little, you know, matrix helmet on them, push them all off 
into a field in Kent somewhere and they can just fight World War Two off in their fantasy land forever and let the rest of us get on with objective reality. Well, now that, maybe that is a very realistic kind of um, thing to work towards. <laughs> You know, that's a very interesting use of VR, isn't it? Yeah. It is. I mean, it would improve my life, and I think that's what we're real, all shooting for. Um, okay, now here's the problem. Mm. So, with Mark Zuckerberg in charge, what makes you think that all those, uh, for example, Brexit deniers aren't going to put the VR helmet on you and people who think like you and put you guys in the field? Well, this is it, and I don't think it's a far-fetched uh, idea that like with, with Facebook's history, that they could oh. quite easily cozy up to people on, quote-unquote, the other side of the argument. Exactly, yeah. I don't think they have any inhibitions about um, working yeah. with the Trumps or with Vote Leave, who, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the Brexit stuff, but uh, that was one of the big campaigning entities behind Brexit. Yes, well, while we're talking on that, let me. do we have time left for one more anecdote? Sure. Okay, so... When the Bush administration, uh, George uh, George II, but when he decided to go into um, you know invade Iraq and Afghanistan and, our, uh, and all that stuff, the people behind and it pains me to say so, but it goes into what you're saying about um, dark and tormented. The people who were behind the uh, the training for how to torture people were two psychologists. Mm. They were two psychologists. And uh, they were brought up on charges by the professional association. The professional association, in a dark moment for psychology, didn't do a damn thing about it. So, yes, we certainly have some psychologists who will go over to the dark and tormented side. And that's a good example. We haven't had any that I can think of uh, in the past uh, 20 years or so. But those two stand out because mm -hmm. it shocked so many of me and my colleagues and so many professional associations. But even the state of New York, as I recall, did not do anything to uh, discipline them mm. and said that the uh, psychologists who were complaining about them had no standing, could not bring any charges against them. What clearly, clearly uh, what they did was violating uh, so many of the uh, the ethics that I talked about earlier. We have very strict ethics and they violated them and um, they were not accountable by the professional association. They are still in court, but uh, the professional association did not do anything. So it is possible that you have some psychologists going to the dark side. Yeah, well, especially when you we you start wrapping rhetoric around it, like uh, look, this is what your country needs. You're a psychologist in the United States. You do this for your country. You need to do this to to f help fight the enemies, and then they'll start talking about insurgents and terror threats and national security. And before you know it, I guess you're two psychologists working for the American government, but you end up with a nice house at the end of it or something. Yes, presumably. Presumably they could pay quite a bit. They had a company. It wasn't just two of them alone. They started the company and they had employees and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so are they still practicing now? Or? Uh, I have lost track of them. They're not in the news very much, so I don't know whether they're still practicing. My guess is they are not practicing uh, at all. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's sort of an exaggerated uh, example of, I, like I read somewhere that the reason that facebook and twitter and instagram and all of these apps are so addictive is because they genuinely employ psychologists to school them on how the brain works and what reward mechanisms want and and so that's why they design it's like basically it's playing a fruit machine like you pull out your phone you look for your notifications if it's there you get a little dopamine rush and mm -hmm. um and I always felt like there was a big sort of, you know, ethical question mark over that. Like, if you were a psychologist, why would you be advising these huge capitalist institutions well, to... Um, true, good point, good point. All of those things are good point, and I believe that is true, except the fact that you don't need to be a psychologist to do that. You have people who are neuroscientists that would go right out of the research lab uh, to do those things. Um, you usually don't have psychiatrists doing those things because they're not they're not trained to know that. But people at the master's level, people at the bachelor's level, mm. just read an introductory psychology book and they'll give you enough information to start a company about mm. uh, doing that kind of stuff. So uh, you you not need to be a clinical psychologist to do it. You can have someone at a much lower level to do that. You, you need to be a clinical psychologist to really go into, well, actually, real good therapy. You know, cognitive behavioral therapy and well-done psychotherapy is really like heart surgery or brain surgery. You really need quite a lot of skill and talent to do it. You can't, you can't just uh, not do a good job on it and expect to skate by. You really need to know your stuff. But people at, uh, at a lower level, 
counselors and stuff, they don't, they don't need that kind of skill because they're not working with those kinds of difficulties. So it's possible to have a side time gig coming up with an app, you know, a sleep app, or antidepressant app, something like that. And nowadays people are going to be happy to pour money into it because insurance companies will be happy to pay for it. Mm. Is it very effective for people? No, but that doesn't matter because it has the appearance of being effective. And you don't need to be a clinical psychologist to come up with that appearance. You could be at a, at a much lower level of education to come up with that. Is that, are you familiar with the mindfulness app? Uh, I'm not familiar with any mindfulness app, but certainly mindfulness has been out there for generations. They call it a different thing every generation. Right. This is like, this is a hugely successful app in certainly in the UK. I don't know if it's been launched worldwide, uh, but it's, it's essentially just a nice slick looking app and you tap into it. And then there's a guy with a very soft voice that sort of, you know, talks to you like this and just tells you to clear your mind and focus on the silence and, you know, all, all the usual mindfulness stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this app is a monster success people are happy to pay you know they'll start off with the free trial tier thing and uh and then move up to the premium level and uh and and i guess I, so what you're saying i don't want to put words in your mouth but what you're suggesting maybe is that you could just read you could read a like entry-level psychology book and go fuck it i'm gonna i'm gonna make an app like that and it would somebody would back it right sure absolutely sure and also uh, that brings up an important point between what is therapeutic and what is therapy. So, for example, talking to your friends, that should be therapeutic. Yeah. You know, talking to a mentor, you know, talking to people in your family, that should be therapeutic. But that does not make them your therapist. That does not mean that they have the skills to do therapy to help untangle major problems. So that app you mentioned, it certainly can be very therapeutic. Right? Just like having someone say, hey, hey, just you know, relax, relax, calm down. That also should be very therapeutic, right? But it's not therapy. No. There's a difference. So a lot of these apps could be very helpful, and helpful could be very therapeutic, but they're not therapy. Sure, sure. I'd never really thought about that um, before. I thought, I thought you were going to go on a slightly different tangent there where, you know, when you talk to your friends, you hang out with your friends, it is a sort of therapeutic experience, and you do get a reward mechanism there because... Mm -hmm for for millennia or, or centuries certainly we've we've needed to huddle together in groups and then we get safety through that safety in numbers um uh and then when you get into kind of the app space and the social media space although you're engaging with your friends it actually almost turns on its head a little bit it feels like because in this in a similar way to emails you know you can't quite read someone's tone the same uh -huh. are they being a bit shitty with me are they you know are they being uh -huh. short was i being rude to them why haven't they replied all of these it becomes a different experience it's not therapeutic any longer it's actually there's right. a level of anxiety to it right well, correct well you can also create psychopathology in people uh using basic psychological procedures just as though you can reverse psycho psychopathology in people you know because our the way we are as a human human beings the way we are um, biologically organized associations work they just work work mm. both ways you know backwards forwards up down sideways they just work and what you associate to something is really in the hands of the the individual so if you have an abusive boss he can create a very abusively reinforcing organization if you have a good boss a nice boss he can create or she can create a, a very rewarding positively uplifting kind of situation but that doesn't start from nothing. It starts with the individual in charge. So you can design any kind of program that you want, and hopefully it's therapeutic, but it could be malevolent. Mm. Some would suggest that Facebook is malevolent. Some would suggest that Google is malevolent. You know, Some would suggest that the invention of the automobile was a bad, bad idea. <laughs> you, know, you can always take these things and use them uh, and turn them on their head. It really depends on how these things are used and who the person in charge is. And kind of the way they're put together that is a huge variable sure sure yeah i mean i'm somewhat more sort of forgiving i suppose of of people like zuckerberg like zuckerberg gets a bad rap a lot of the time for for the right reasons uh uh but i don't go as far as thinking he's this sort of this evil overlord that set out with bad intentions i feel like he genuinely when he started his 
website and it blew up i feel like he really did feel like it'd be really cool to connect a lot of people across the globe and it was going to be a positive thing um i just think it's you know it's the the parallel with the automobile that you've that you've drawn is probably spot on in terms of it was it was invented for a an admirable reason and it it succeeded in many many of its goals but now <laughs> like where has it got us and how do we undo that right right um dr a we we're out of time thank you so much for joining me tonight um uh, i noticed earlier you're not really on social media is that sort of a deliberate thing or uh, yes, that's a deliberate thing. Uh, thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. But I'm not on social media because the work I do, I'm really very busy. My practice is almost constantly full. And I just do not have time to be able to respond to social media. I would be on there answering questions and responding to comments. I just don't have any time to do that. Um, so I don't. So I'm not on any kind of social media. There are other psychologists, I think, who are on social media. But uh, my experience is people who are working full time, actually in the trenches, boots on the ground, doing the work, they don't have time. Sure. Social media. sure okay um cool i mean i was just going to say like if anyone wanted to sort of catch up with you or check out more of your stuff but i suppose i'll just refer them to your to your book for now um well, the website you can go to the website oh the wicked website i have in terms of there are two one is a vista health services.net cool uh, and there's a, another one uh, called uh, dr a plus.com talks about a lot of the seminars that i'm available to lead if people want to hire me to do uh, an online seminar and uh, then I also have a link on one of those sites, or maybe both of them, uh, to an old radio program I had where I talked about um, total school success, how people can overcome obstacles when they have learning disabilities, things like that in school. So they can reach me through one of those things. There are links to uh, my email if they want to. And I guess I would be remiss if I didn't hold up. Oh, sure. My book. Yeah. So just take a look at that. Right? Yeah. 10 so. Lessons in Power Psychology, Psychology Tips and Techniques for People Who Would Never Visit a Psychologist's Office. Right. Uh, and that's available through its own website, through one of those websites I gave you, and also at Amazon. Wicked. Cool. Good stuff. Well, thanks again for, for joining me tonight and uh, wish you all the best for the future. Uh, you, we'll be back next week uh, with uh, Wired Magazine's Daniel Whiteson. We're going to be talking about teleporting. Um, and uh, yeah, if you want to grab the um, the audio of any of these podcasts, they're out on Patreon immediately afterwards uh, and then they'll be out on iTunes and Spotify in the following days after that. Thank you so much again to my guest tonight, Dr. Michael Abritsasi. Thanks a lot, Adrian.